is just a quick message to let you know that Elucidations now has a blog. Check it out at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu slash blogs slash elucidations. Check it out. Let us know what you think. to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Francie Russell. With us today is Rafiq Hassan, Collegiate Assistant Professor in the Society of Fellows in the Division of the Humanities at the University of Chicago. And he's here to talk with us about Rousseau on Freedom and Happiness. Rafiq Hassan, welcome. Thank you. So Rousseau is most famous for putting forth this idea that in a just, well-ordered society, citizens live autonomously. Uh, What exactly did he mean by that? Right. So, I mean, probably some of the passages from his work, particularly from the social contract that uh, people know the best, is when he says things like the following. He says, for instance, um, the impulsion of appetite is alone is slavery, and obedience to the law one has prescribed to oneself is freedom. And earlier he says, that the basic problem of political theory is to find a form of association that will allow us to each obey only ourselves and remain as free as before, right? So I think the driving thought of his whole political philosophy, and I would say even more broadly, his whole philosophy in general, is something like, under what conditions could it be the case that individuals obey only themselves? And so, his conception of freedom as autonomy is something like a conception of being able to lead my own life where that means that I obey only myself, right? Now, that could seem like a kind of rampant individualism in a way, as though obeying only myself means I can do whatever I want and you can do whatever you want and therefore we obey only ourselves. I think the interesting thing about his view is he seems to say that actually what it would take to satisfy the ideal of a being only myself is for us to, as it were, get together and create a system of laws that bind us equally. So how is that supposed to work? I guess my thought there is the following. I think autonomy for him is first and foremost a concept that involves a relation between people. Right. So the primary idea of obeying only my myself is something like not being dominated by you. And I think the thought is that given certain inescapable facts of human nature, um, namely that we're not all equally as strong, let's say, and even more importantly, that we all sort of depend on each other in order to meet our basic human needs, given the fact of interdependence, and the ideal of being non-dependent on others. So where the only way to solve this problem is to think of ourselves as equally and dependent in the same way on a collection of laws that we've given ourselves. So I would say in some sense, that's the basic aspiration and goal of his uh, political philosophy. So the idea is that living autonomously means living only according to rules that I've set for myself and not according to any other rules that somebody else has imposed upon me. But as you just pointed out, there's also this dimension of sort of getting together with other people and agreeing on rules that we're all going to follow. 
That's also an important part of autonomy. So was it also part of Rousseau's view that, for example, a lone hermit in the woods, just following his own rules, not ever talking to other people, would somehow not really be free? Was that part of what he thought? I think that that ought to be a consequence of his view. Well, I mean, there are a few things to say. First off is I think he thinks that is an extremely unusual case. I mean, as a paradoxical fact, it's a kind of case that he exemplified himself at various points in his life, um, being a lone hermit out in the woods. But I do think he thinks that human beings are necessarily interdependent. To be a hermit in the woods is a sort of deficient case and in a way sort of parasitic upon the condition of interdependence in which we by and large find ourselves. I do think in that case, I mean, I think it might be important to draw distinctions between kinds of freedom. I'm trying to push an interpretive line, I think, which says that something like political freedom, the kind of freedom that I get insofar as I'm a member of a just political community, is in some sense primary. And that if you really think about it, for instance, it's only in such a case that, as it were, the kind of freedom that comes about from being able to do whatever I want, let's say, to like pursue my own aims. Well, so what would it mean to pursue my own aims freely? I mean, one, one thing that it would mean is be able to pursue my own aims in a way that's unhindered by you. And I think the thought would be that if you and I don't have a state, it could be that you're going along and doing whatever you want. You're hunting all day in the woods out there. But if we don't have a state, I can come along and thwart you all of a sudden, right? And you don't have any right to complain, right? And now if you don't have a right to complain, then it turns out that my ability to like pursue my own goals in an unhindered way was just due to luck or let's say, or due to your good graces, due to the fact that you didn't want to come and frustrate my ends. But now if what we have is a state, particularly a state that protects individual rights, how you draw the boundaries is an open question, but if you have at least some sphere of, let's say, private right, now it turns out, and so say that we've, you know, set up a rule in which being able to hunt on my own lands is just a goal I can have, right? It's my own goal. Now it turns out that if you come and step on my land and prevent me from doing it, you're thwarting me in a way that's morally significant, right? So I think the thought would be, you could imagine cases absent a state in which I get to do whatever I want, but those look to be radically contingent in a way. It could happen at any time that someone comes along and thwarts me. And I don't seem to have grounds for legitimate complaint. So say we live together in a community and there's two people, each autonomous, and so each governing themselves, living by their own rules. How do we get together? So how is it that I'm on the one hand not constrained by you, and on the other hand, our sets of rules aren't just incompatible? Right. So I think it's really maybe important to distinguish a couple different ways in which we understand autonomy. Um, one way in which we understand autonomy seems to be precisely by you and I being bound together by rules of conduct that dictate how we treat each other. And there's one sense of autonomy where that means we're bound by the same rules and we've in some sense of willed each willed those rules, right? So as it were, you're, you know, it's not a case where you and I are bound by the same rules just because you've made up the rules for both of us. Right? So that's one case um, idea of autonomy. Um, I would argue for Rousseau, at least in the political philosophy, one of the primary senses of autonomy. It seems to me there's another sense of autonomy as something like 
having my own standards, being able to set my own ideals, pursue my own goals, cultivate some sort of sense of individuality in a way. But again, I think my answer to this question is sort of going to be like the answer to Matt's question that he just asked, which I think the Rousseauian thought is that we can't even have a form of life in which we are each pursuing, let's say, some set of individual particularistic goals unless we have some set of norms of equal treatment, right? So it seems to me that the thought would be, the way you pose the question is, we're each these units and we each have autonomy. Now, how do we put these things together? Whereas I think the kind of Rousseauian way would be to think that actually it's our getting together. It's the fact that it's where we've gotten together in a certain kind of way that makes my right to have my own individuality secure. So all by way of saying, I think, you know, there was a kind of older interpretation of the Rousseauian state, which thought it's just a kind of totalitarianism by another name because the individual is supposed to be swallowed up into the collective. I think what that gets wrong is that it seems to me that political philosophers often vacillate between two views. Either the view is that we each have natural rights that we bring to the state and that serve as a check on the state. And that's how you sort of preserve the value of um, individuality. Or the alternative is often thought to be a kind of totalitarian view in which we don't have any individual rights at all and the state can do anything it wants with us. I think the Rousseauian view is I get individual rights only through the construction of a state. It's only in the right sort of collective that an individual can be free, which is a kind of rough paraphrase of something that Marx actually says in the German ideology, but I think is a kind of Rousseauian thought. Okay, so your answer to me was essentially even to get to the place where our rules could conflict already presupposes this sort of commonality, that even to have individuals, there has to be this sort of prior commonality. Um, yeah. So then what, yeah. how do we get there? Because it seems that in order to will a common state or a common set of rules, don't we need individuals that can do that, that are already in some sense Aha. there okay. to will? Right. So I really like the first thing you said a lot, which is that in order to, I think that's a very helpful way to put it, that in order even to have a conflict between rules that I take to be a normative conflict, and by that I mean a conflict that's actually about not just can I beat you over the head, am I stronger than you, but am I justified, right? So as soon as we have a conflict about what we're each justified in doing, that already presupposes a minimal set of norms that constitute us as the kind of beings who can engage in that conflict over what could be justified or not. So I guess the thought would be, you don't engage in conflicts about what kinds of treatment is justified with animals, let's say, because I mean, they can't speak back to you, right? Um, the Rousseauian thought might be, but this opens a whole other kettle of fish, the thought might be that you can't even do that with something like humanity as such something like the abstract ideal of humanity. Um, I think he's pretty clearly not a cosmopolitan in that sense. I do think he thinks you need something like a shared political framework in order to even have, as it were, the ground rules that allow political conflicts to come into view. So that's the first thing. I think that's really helpful. The second thing about is, well, look, it's all fine and well to say an individual is constituted through the state some, in some sense, but that seems to lose the idea that what we have is a contract. 
right? Because if what you have is a contract, you have individuals in place who can make an agreement. And in fact, actually, um, Hegel thought that this was a big problem with Rousseau's version of the social contract. If the end product is these deeply communal individuals that see their good in the good of the whole, how on earth are you going to establish that from a contract made by a bunch of individuals that seem to be protecting their own interests, right? So my thought has to be that there's a note that if you want to hold on to the idea that Rousseau is a contractarian theorist, if you want to hold that idea together with the idea that the end result of the view is one in which an individual gets his individuality or the, or the full sense of his individuality through participation in the state, you have to have a view that the contract is something like a development of character. So you have to have something like a developmental account so that it turns out that I make an agreement to protect, let's say, my own interests, but the result of that agreement is it propels me in an, into a new form of life which allows me to, let's say, realize my highest human potentials. So just think about the example, for instance, of two individuals decide to get married just because they exist in a society in which there's certain kind of economic perks for that, or let's say, or, or you know, or they have, or, you know, they think they might get lonely sometimes, you know, and this is a pretty good arrangement to get out of it. So you can think of their interests as sort of self-interested in a way. Now, it turns out they get married, and let's suppose just for the sake of, you know, being romantic, that they fall deeply in love, right, and come to a new sense of themselves. It looks like the first sort of an agreement that they made was, a, in a way, a kind of enabling condition for them to sort of more deeply realize themselves. And it seems like if at time T2, after they are deeply in love, they can look back and see the first agreement they made as a necessary but not sufficient condition for, let's say, the goodness or value or anything of what they currently have. And I think the Rousseauian idea is the relation to the state has to have that same form. That, that, that to me is the only way one can hold together. Otherwise, there just looks like a deep paradox in his view where it seems like the agreement we make is for pursuing my own interests. I mean, including an interest I have in freedom. So it's not just an interest I have in like getting to hold on to my stuff over here. It's an interest I have in getting to hold on to my stuff over here in a way that doesn't leave me dependent on your good graces. So that's what sort of leads us to sign on to the state. But then he quickly says, this transition from the state of nature to the civil state produces a most remarkable change in man by substituting justice for instinct in his conduct and endowing his actions with the morality they previously lacked. Only then, when the voice of duty succeeds physical impulsion and right succeeds appetite, does man, who until then had looked only to himself, see himself forced to act on other principles and to consult his reason before heeding his inclinations, right? So it seems like this transition from the pre-state condition to the state is what, is what in some sense produces us as a fully developed oral subject. So one might ask, how does an agreement made to protect my own interests produce this as its outcome? It seems to me there must be some sort of implicit developmental story going on. That's interesting. So it sounds like, if I'm understanding you correctly, on this view, the relation between individual and the state in which they live is a bit like the relationship between 
the two main characters in the movie Green Card or something, where you get married <laughs> just in order to secure certain, as it were, bureaucratic benefits. Right. That's stage one. And then stage two, you realize, oh, my God, actually, I really feel something for this person. And actually, it wasn't just a business arrangement marriage. It was, it's actually a real marriage and, mm-hmm. you know, and so on and so forth. And I guess the analogy would be something like, you know, you can imagine the stage at which we all sort of started off, you know, on separate farms or something, each of us protecting our own rights, coming to this sort of equilibrium where we each agree generally to try to help each other and not infringe on each other's rights as much as we can. But then eventually that transforms into something more. It transforms into the state where we're really living as a community and we genuinely care about each other. And it's not just a lot of people looking out for number one and coming to an equilibrium. It's something more than that. Yep. And I think what's interesting there is part of why that view might seem strange to us now is that it seems to read some kind of, even if it's a fictionalized account, but some kind of account of human development or bildung, as Hegel might say. I mean, it's some sort of account of gradually becoming what you most truly are. It seems to read that account, which we often maybe think is just a question of human psychology, the accidents of human history, etc. It seems to read that into the basic idea of what makes a state legitimate in the first place, right? And of course, the story I tell about Rousseau, of course, places him very much as a precursor to German idealism, right? And I think that this idea of a developmental account playing a role in a story about what makes any kind of obligation, including political obligations, legitimate, is something that gets deeply picked up by Ichte and Hegel and those who came after him. Now, is this meant to be a literal sort of first, we lived like this, and then a hundred years later, we started living like this? Is it meant to be like this happened and that happened kind of story, or is this sort of stage one, stage two thing more of a metaphor? Yeah, I mean, mean, so I do think that um, Rousseau himself is a fantastically interesting philosopher, but can be sort of painful to work on at times because he doesn't always put things quite as clearly as you would hope. So I do think that sometimes, particularly in texts like the Discourse on the Origin of Inequality, it very much seems to be some kind of actual historical account. Although even there he quite maddeningly says, let us put aside all the facts because they do not affect the question for which you think you've given us this painstaking putatively historical account and then you're saying well the facts don't matter so i mean i'm not sure I'm, i don't want to make claims about what i think rousseau himself thought but i think probably the way to be a rousseauian now right um one way to keep the thought alive would be to think that it's a metaphor right and it's a metaphor that's the value of which is to capture the idea that in thinking about why the obligations of the state or even let's take it in the oral case of other people, why I'm obligated to them, um, what could make for the bindingness of that. One needs to have an account of what kind of people we can come to be by structuring our lives in that way. So the way you've been speaking, it seems like being autonomous is the way that we can justify our political organizations or the political states that we're a part of. But is autonomy enough? 
Couldn't we imagine autonomous people who maybe were quite dissatisfied with that condition? So I think it's important here to, in many ways, note um, the way my own interpretation um, builds on the work of other scholars, right? So I think that quite a few people um, have pointed out and made a lot of the fact that the idea of autonomy, where again, that means something like my ability to live unhindered by the wills of others, is in some sense a central value, and that quite a bit of what justifies um, both the authority that a state has over us and the aspiration we ought to have to exist in a well-ordered state, that both of those things in some ways stem from uh, the ideal of autonomy. But I do think that commentators these days, uh, particularly associated with the social autonomy interpretation, and so here this is uh, these are philosophers like Joshua Cohen and Frederick Neuhauser, and in quite a few ways John Rawls himself, I do think that what they leave out is that for Rousseau himself, autonomy is itself valuable for the role it plays in enabling collective forms of human flourishing. So the view would be something like, the reason we should care so much about autonomy is it's only if we're each, I mean, I, I know this is going to sound like a very paradoxical way of uh, point, but the point would be something like, it's only if we're each autonomous that we can create the right sorts of communities that allow us to each develop our essential human capacities. So now, that might set off a lot of red flags because that might look to make autonomy instrumentally valuable. Like, right, there's an externally defined end, something like, the flourishing of a community, and it could seem like the view would have to collapse into autonomy just being a highly useful means to achieve that end, right? In which case then you would be open to the idea that this isn't a view that protects the autonomy of individuals at all, because it could be another case in which the best way to bring about the end of communal flourishing would be to precisely to violate the autonomy of individuals, right? And so the thought has to be that what Rousseau is after is a very delicate balance where autonomy, the value of autonomy, gets its force from the role it plays in enabling collective flourishing without simply being an instrumental means to it. So how is that supposed to go? Well, here, I mean, I think that I am embarking upon a sort of heavily reconstructive attempt to sort of just make sense of, of the view. I mean, clearly one common way in philosophy of thinking about an alternative to a means ends relationship is to think about a part-whole relationship, right? So just to give a very kind of simplistic example, um, putting isn't a means to playing golf. It's a part of the whole that is playing golf, right? So it seems to me that what the Rousseauian view needs to be is it has to be something like autonomy is a constituent part of a broader ideal of collective human flourishing. So that one could not flourish unless each individual was autonomous, but that doesn't necessarily mean that autonomy is just a means to an externally defined end. So when we say happiness in this setting, uh, presumably we're drawing on the ancient Greek meaning of the term, whereby it's not really like a psychological state that I'm feeling so much as a state of having lived a good life or something like that. Is that right. what I mean the term? So again, here I'm fighting a parallel set of interpretive battles, which is how on earth to understand Rousseau on happiness, right? 
And there is one interpretation, one school of interpretation that really thinks that he's firmly modern and what he's giving us is a conception of happiness which really is about subjective, pleasurable states of satisfaction, right? It's just about feeling good. It doesn't have any other content than that. Um, and, you know, there are certain passages in texts of his, like the Reveries of the Solitary Walker, where he talks about enjoyment or happiness as something just like a kind of ecstatic state of pleasure, right? I think, though, that actually many of his remarks about happiness or synonyms, I would say, things like self-development, self-cultivation, flourishing, actually are much closer to various ancient conceptions of happiness in which if I'm happy or not isn't just a matter of how I feel about myself, but it's a matter of how, in fact, my life is actually going. So just to give a kind of classic example, you know, you could have someone who's just deluded, for instance, into thinking that, you know, his children love him and he has a meaningful work, job, like all these things. He just feels great about it. And we might say he's happy, even though it might turn out, for instance, that his children don't actually lo love him at all. They're just pretending to because they want their um, inheritance. And it could turn out that his job isn't actually, in, in actuality, he's not developing any of his essential human ends at all. You know, the someone else in the firm is actually doing all the important work and he's just, as it were, too dumb to know, but he feels great about himself. It seems like a modern, I mean, this is a very caricatured way to split the views, but I think it, it sells. I mean, I think like, it seems like a modern would say he is happy and a kind of more ancient view would say not happy because even though he may feel good about himself, the objective conditions for his human flourishing are not actually there. I think that the reason commentators might be confused about what Rousseau means by happiness is I do think he thinks that it is part of an objective definition of happiness that the individual has to have a pleasurable attitude as well. So even if all of the conditions are there for me to be flourishing, if I don't find it pleasurable, then I'm not actually flourishing. So it seems like happiness involves both an objective and subjective condition, which is why it can be easy to read it too much one way or another. But yeah, so I'm really using happiness in a way synonymous with something like human self-realization, the fostering flowering of our essential human capacities, among which are certainly some that make us constitutively social. What exactly would you say to somebody who thought there was a deep paradox between saying we should all live completely freely and autonomously and we should work together and um, so that we can build a happy communal life for ourselves. I think for a lot of people today, those seem like just, it seems like there's a trade-off between those two things. Like you can't have both. Um, I mean, look, I completely agree that this seems like a paradoxical idea. And I often think that the reason we should read philosophers from past times is to kind of pursue ideas that to us seem deeply paradoxical, um, maybe even scary at times. Um, so I think the thought is that if you think that individuals can make sense of themselves entirely independently of interaction in certain sorts of communities, then it's going to look like in talking about individual and community, we just have two different goals in view. We have the goal of the individual and we have the goal of the community. And these are two different things. And how, 
how can I sit here and say that these things sort of come together in some harmonious unity, right? And I'm also, I should say that I'm completely fine with the idea that given the world in which we actually live uh, and the kinds of ends and desires we have and the kinds of communities that may be possible for us now that maybe these are conflicts, right? But we, I, I think what we're talking about is a conceptual point um, or even a conceptual ideal. So I think the thought would be, in that case, it seems like I'm claiming there's this good called community happiness. And I'm just saying, oh, isn't it nice? It turns out that autonomy is the means to achieve that end. But I guess my view here is that something like you couldn't even understand what it was to be an individual unless you existed in a political community that was structured according to norms of equal treatment for our starters so that there's not two things that are externally defined that one is trying to bridge but that you know again as hegel might say or someone after Rousseau might say each contains the other term right so the thought has to be something like the kind of flourishing at which we're aiming includes as a constituent part the autonomy of each individual Right. So to bring that down to earth a little bit, the idea is not that we have individual and we have community, how are we going to bring them together? It's that we have individuals who are aiming at a community that both preserves their individuality, but by preserving their individuality allows them to connect in ways that they wouldn't be able to do if they were just a set of isolated individuals. So you've been talking uh, a lot about individuals willing a certain kind of community organized by norms that they have themselves endorsed. So how active do these community members need to be on Rousseau's view of political life? And if this is going to have any sort of, make any kind of claim on us now, should we be endeavoring to be more active in our own political lives? Would this be a more Rousseauian right. vision of the world? So both complicated questions. The first is the interpretive question of how active does uh, Rousseau think citizens need to be. The first answer is that at least in certain texts, very active. And in fact, there's a kind of tragic dimension of his thought where he thinks that the ideal that he's giving forth would require citizens to be so active that they would cease to be anything like people of modern societies as we can imagine that it would involve really a kind of heavily Greek ideal of freed people eating in the public square in order to decide the laws that govern them. And look, that seems to be quite impossible for us now, right? The interesting thing is in other texts, though, in texts where he's talking about actual political societies and not ideals, he does seem to be slightly less down on something like representative institutions. So like not direct democracy. The other thing you asked though is what would it mean to be a Rousseauian today? And my feeling about this is the following. Um, I'm not too much a fan of the kind of civic virtue approach that in my view oftentimes just goes around kind of browbeating individuals into thinking that they should participate in politics more. So yes, I mean, if what you're exhorting is people to try to change their institutions, I'm all for that. But if you're exhorting people just to vote for the sake of, because there's some intrinsic good in that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that might be a useful bit of 
social policy, but I'm not sure if philosophy should be in that business, right? So it seems to me that the properly Rousseauian view would be less interested in how much do I have to participate and, you know, can the state punish me or something for like not going to the polling booth? It seems to me, I'm not so comfortable with thinking that that's the business philosophy should be in. It seems to me philosophy should be in the business more of thinking, maybe philosophy and political science should be more in the business of thinking, what would we need to do to our democratic institutions, to the way in which they're structured, to make them more accurately reflect the common good? So that seems to me a kind of way to sort of maybe reactualize Rousseau in a way that doesn't seem so dependent on a kind of romantic and maybe impossible ideal of like full citizen participation or something. So what do you think is the like practical upshot of this view according to which individual autonomy and collective happiness are intertwined? You know, what practical effects does that have on the way we live our lives? So one thing it does, I mean, I'm not positive that it has too many practical effects, but it has practical effects in the sense that it allows us to think about the connection between our ideals and maybe the interconnection between our ideals. And I think that down the road can have important practical effects. So one thing it seems to me that Rousseau doesn't think enough about, but you can take everything I'm saying and put a kind of Rousseauian spin on it, is that if part of what a society needs to do is allow us to realize our essential human capacities, and if one of the main ways in which we realize our essential human capacities is maybe through work, through this category that doesn't seem to play a huge role in Rousseau's own thought, then it seems to me that therefore one ought to be committed, for instance, to the state demanding, let's say, access to and conditions for socially meaningful work on the part of each of its citizens. So for instance, a case in which it's not the case that you know, only the CEO of the firm gets to do a wide range of activities, for instance, and everyone else has to do one thing over and over again. Here I'm not saying anything new. There have been all kinds of demands for sort of reorganization of the structures of work. I think the twist that my view would put on it is I'm saying all of that stuff. It's not just that we have two different values. We have the value of freedom, and then we have the value of, let's say, socially meaningful work. By saying that these things are interdependent, I think we're left with a much more radical position, which is that insofar as there are other people for whom political society is not a way in which their essential human capacities can be developed, I'm no longer free. I'm no longer free if there's anybody for whom society is not a route to their meaningful self-realization. I'm no longer free because they're no longer free. So our freedom stands or falls together. And I think that's a thought that you see versions of in various oppositional political movements today. And I think it's something that, from my reading, looks Rousseauian. So our freedom stands or falls together. And yet you want to keep that idea married to an idea of self-realization with a fairly robust conception of the individual Mm -hmm. and his or her own endeavors. And there are some people that might think that that's going to be quite difficult, if not impossible, and maybe even conceptually incompatible. Right. So this gets again into, I mean, this is an interesting question because it's also an interpretive debate. So one sort of interpretive debate in Rousseau is, well, isn't he just an individualist after all? Because he says all of this stuff about collective flourishing, 
but it seems like you know the point of collective flourishing is that it allows for the flourishing of individuals so i just want to give you a couple passages so he says for instance do not imagine that the state can be happy when all of its members are suffering because if the feeling of well-being exists in no one it is not anything at all right so it seems like the primary unit of value here are individuals right there's no such thing as the good of the state where that's some separate thing independently of the good of individuals. So one might say he is an individualist despite himself, right? And it seems to me that he is an individualist uh, despite himself or despite some of these formulations and that one ought to be. But again, I'm wondering, is this an individualist view to say, look, there's no such thing as the good of society where that means something other than the good of the individuals who make it up. But if what it is to be an individual is to have certain social ends that are valued for their own sake, then the very idea that there's a tension between being an individualist and being whatever you want to call it, a communitarian or something, seems to me to break down. So it's almost like you want to say, my self-realization is only possible as our right. shared realization. Right. Rafiq Hassan. Thank you very much for a delightful interview during which uh, no one impinged on anyone else's freedom to speak and we all managed to realize ourselves. Thanks so much for having me. If you have any questions about this episode, you can post them to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N dot uchicago dot edu slash blogs slash elucidations. On the blog, you can get background information on the topics we covered and join in the discussion. 